let's talk trade. Let's talk about sort of the blindsiding from U.S. President Donald Trump. Yep, he's at it again, slamming Canada, the U.S.'s largest global trading partner and once much celebrated and trusted neighbor. Remember that? He was at a campaign stop in Ohio yesterday. Here's what Trump said. My fifth promise to American workers is to bring back American jobs and factories using every tool at my disposal, including tariffs. I love properly put on tariffs because they bring unfair competitors from foreign countries to do whatever you want them to do. Countervailing duties and new trade deals based on the principle of fairness and reciprocity. And I'll be signing something very important. Watch over the next week. I think you'll be very proud of your president. I'm going to be signing something that's very important over the next probably week. And it'll have a tremendous impact on fairness and trade. As part of this commitment earlier today, I signed a proclamation that defends American industry by reimposing aluminum tariffs on Canada. Canada was taking advantage of us, as usual. As usual. There was swift and firm response from our Deputy Prime Minister, Christian Freeland. Listen to this. Ajute. Canada's position on tariffs today is exactly what it was in June 2018, when the last round of unwarranted U.S. 232 tariffs was imposed. These tariffs are unnecessary, unwarranted, and entirely unacceptable. They should not be imposed. Let me be clear. Canadian aluminum is in no way a threat to U.S. national security, which remains the ostensible reason for these tariffs. Again, that's Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland reacting to Donald Trump's uh, dropping of the announcement that tariffs were coming on Canadian aluminum and steel. With this new NAFTA, the Canada-U.S.-Mexico agreement just coming into effect, what, July 1st? We're allies, right? We had this sorted. Mm -hmm. Strained at best might explain Canada-U.S. relations presently. And when it comes to trade agreements, well, our next guest calls this latest version, the Canada-U.S.-Mexico agreement, a Seinfeld agreement. Let's talk that through with the director of the Trade and Investment Centre, Canada West Foundation, Carlo Date, is with us. Thanks for doing this. Hey, my pleasure, Jody. So why is this the Seinfeld agreement? <laughs> That's uh, the idea. If you remember, Seinfeld was a show about nothing. Uh, mm -hmm. There was these, the, the episode, I think it was season three, Hitch, where they talk about a show about nothing. And indeed, that was why there was so little press coverage over the signing uh, of the agreement. Uh, the Prime Minister did not bother to go to Washington uh, for the announcement. Look, basically, we updated the NAFTA agreement five years ago with the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, the U.S., Mexico, Canada, all in a trade agreement, new rules, major changes. When Trump came into office, he said, a win-win trade agreement doesn't work for me. I want an I-win-you-lose trade agreement. Indeed, we spent three years trying to limit losses and limit damage, not come up with gains, but limit. So in essence, what we wound up with after three years 
of negotiation was 80 or 75 percent of what we had already negotiated in the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. So really, we didn't get major changes. We didn't get major updates. And as we've consistently argued and others have pointed out, we did not get an end to uncertainty in North American trade. The only certainty we have for the auto industry where we had the Americans agree that we got, I think, a million cars across the border before they could impose national security tariffs or other tariffs. So we had a set amount of auto trade that was guaranteed to be safe from what we've just seen happen with steel and aluminum. But yeah, uh, no one thought that the steel and aluminum tariffs were going to stay off forever. No one thought that Trump wasn't going to, if the opportunity presented itself, do this. And unfortunately, we've been proven right in that. How on earth, for a layman like myself, can you explain to me how on earth Canadian aluminum is a threat to U.S. national security? It's not. And that's not the purpose of the 1964 uh, Trade Expansion Act in the U.S. The national security provisions state that lack of production of a certain product is in the U.S. is at the U.S. So it doesn't care about from where the product is come. It only cares that in the event of a war or another catastrophe, the U.S. would have enough production going on in the U.S., enough workers making the product in the U.S., enough research and development, et cetera, in the U.S., that the U.S. is okay. So that is the intent of the the U.S. law. And you take it from that perspective, the Americans don't care who the heck is sending it. They only care that the production is being done in the U.S. That's the purpose of the law, and that's the threat we've always had hanging over our heads with the U.S., it is really interesting, too, what you were saying about instead of a win-win situation that President Donald Trump has wanted, uh, I win, you lose scenario when it comes to trade. America first. We hear it quite constantly. And so with, with such uncertainty in the Oval, you're, you never really know which Donald Trump you're going to get. Is it time for Canada to diversify our trade outside of our longtime partner and neighbor in the U.S.? Well, it's it's always been the case. You know, our two largest trading partners present us, it seems, on a daily basis with with uncertainty. Um, we've been so focused on China and the issues we face with trade uncertainty with China that we forget that it's actually our largest partner that does the same thing. The difference is the Americans don't take Canadians hostage, but uh, on the trade front. Um, I don't mean to sound glib, but you know, on the trade front, we face this uncertainty with the U.S. So the question is, where do we go? Um, the U.S. is the fattest, richest, easiest market in the world. It's right next door to us. China is the second largest trade partner uh, for a host of goods, certainly on the agricultural front. China, and you, we know that 75% of our exports go to the U.S., but on the agricultural front, and the U.S. is our largest agricultural trade partner, China's our second largest agricultural trade partner, but China is larger in the second spot than the next four markets combined. So really, we can talk about diversification, but at the end of the day, we're going to have to learn to manage and mitigate the risk and inherent trade uncertainty with these two 
of course. Lots to talk about on the federal front, internationally, in fact, trade with the U.S. Uh, here is reaction. I know it's from Ontario, but it, it resonates across the country. Listen to what Premier Doug Ford said with regard to these tariffs that uh, President, U.S. President Donald Trump announced at his uh, campaign stop in Ohio yesterday. So, folks, please, this weekend, when you're going into the grocery store, until all the packaging gets changed, look on the back, see where it's manufactured. If it's manufactured in Canada, buy it. And that's how we can support our neighbours, our family and our friends. So can Canadians push back with individual purchases? What else can we do? Uh, I mean, we're, we're basically the population of California going up against the U.S. when they're uh, imposing tariffs on Canadian aluminum. How does this all play out? And what is Donald Trump's endgame here? What's the play here? Why now? Let's talk that through as we continue our conversation uh, with Carlo Dade, who is the Director of Trade and Investment Center uh, for Canada West Foundation. Carlo, thanks again for spending some time with us today. As we're trying to sort of qualify this in our minds, like in the midst of a pandemic with everything else that is going on right now, what's the play here for President Trump? It, uh, without a, a, a videotape or an audio tape of him uh, copying to this, it's politics. You know, he's run on the platform that he is the only U.S. president to trade threats seriously and to consistently uh, defend American interests. Obama, Bush, etc., all would let things like this slide, and you let one thing slide, and the next thing you know, people are taking advantage of the U.S. But his position is that he's going to vigilantly and constantly and with unwavering mention stamp down every issue that pops up. See, you know, the idea that who are taking advantage of the Americans is something every Canadian only dreams about. Uh, it's not. It's not reality, but it, it's obviously politics on his end. At least that's a supposition, and I think it's a fairly safe supposition. Uh, the fact that he was doing it in Ohio, a swing state, well, further is a, is a further piece of evidence to support that argument. It's, it's fascinating, too, to kind of unpack. I mean, for the layman, it's very difficult for us to process the, the nuances of NAFTA when it was in place and then when it was torn up by Donald Trump three years ago. And then, as you mentioned in the first segment, three years of sort of figuring out how to manage the trade agreement with the behemoth that is the United States and coming to the Canada-U.S.-Mexico agreement. And here we are with the Canada-Mexico uh, Canada-U.S.-Mexico agreement and, and what that exactly means. Like, what did we give up there? Did we give up the right for retaliatory measures when tariffs such as these are put in place by the U.S. president? Yeah, that was done with the agreement to put the tariffs on hiatus. So two points. One, the agreement is important because billions of dollars cross the board, I think $2 billion a day, and the vast majority of that flows fairly freely. So when we have a problem, we notice what's gone wrong. We don't notice everything that's going right and all the other goods and all the other benefits we have. And again, the U.S. is fattest, richest, and easiest market on the planet. If 90% of that's working well, that's a good thing. But with this specific issue of steel and aluminum, the agreement with the Americans was to suspend the tariffs not to end the tariffs. The language in the agreement was so ambiguous. If 
imports to the U.S. surge over a historic over norms over a historic period, can reimpose the tariffs. What the heck is a surge? What the heck is norms? And what specific, what historic period are you referring? None of that was identified in the agreement. So basically, if you go up, the Americans can claim a surge and we see what's happening. The other point, we only impose tariffs on the steel and aluminum sector. The last time the Americans did this, we had urban on Harleys. We went after yeah. every congressional district and every product we could to put on pressure. We agreed not to do that this time. We gave up that right to the Americans to suspend the uh, steel and aluminum tariffs the first time. And you look at the list of retaliatory tariffs that the government just put out, and bourbon isn't on that list. Harley-Davidson isn't on that list. It's only uh, aluminum products. So yeah, what, what can you do? Um, what can you do? Cost, like when- the cost of easy access to the Americans has a price, and this is it. Yeah. Now yeah, there it is. Well, when Christian Freeland and, and in her statements made this morning um, seemed very firm and uh, and as always um, studied in the words that she used, but very strong language uh, today in the pushback. Even if there's very little that the Canadian government can truly do to push back, is the position of this is uh, unacceptable, unnecessary, and um, and what is the what is a two three two tariff? She had mentioned that specifically, and I was like, I should probably ask Carlo. What is a two three two tariff? So those are the um, under the Trade Expansion Act. Well, uh, that's right. I, I, I won't go wonky on you, but these are the <laughs> national sec- these, these are the national security tariffs. If oh, okay. lack of production of a product in the U.S. threatens U.S. security, then the administration can convene an investigation. If the investigation confirms, the president can impose tariffs to get production in the U.S. up. Keep out foreign goods, create space in the U.S. market, get U.S. producers to produce the product in the U.S. That's the, that, that's the end game that the Americans have here. And what can Canadians do? What, can they do what Doug Ford said? We should probably be doing that anyway by Canadian, especially in a pandemic, supporting your local. Um, but really, un- until something changes politically south of the border, perhaps that comes November 3rd, perhaps it doesn't, and there's four more years of this. Um, is there anything we can do here other than just sort of nod and think, yeah, well, here we go. Here's another twist from Trump. Yeah, there is something we can do, and it's not the first reaction we have, which is to call Ottawa and get Ottawa to call Washington, D.C. We have unique access to the U.S., not just in terms of the market, but politically. Horgan is a, he, a B.C. is a, a member of the U.S. Council of State Governments. Horgan has a standing invitation to attend the Western Governors Association meeting. The premiers have the ability to reach to their U.S. counterparts. MLAs have friends with U.S. state legislators. We have the ability to create work with alliances. We are members of U.S. state government associations, state working groups. The Pacific Northwest Economic Region is a grouping of U.S. state legislators and Canadian MLAs. 
we have the ability to reach out and form political alliances and to use those alliances. Now, Alberta and Saskatchewan have been very strong on this, but I would argue that British Columbia has limited itself to reaching out to Washington, uh, to Seattle and Portland with the Cascadia Corridor. British Columbia has had one of the weakest participations in terms of outreach to, to U.S. state legislators beyond its very specific interest in Washington. So I would argue that there's one thing that B.C. can do and the B.C. government can do, and that starts showing up and showing up in force at the U.S. Council of State Governments, at Penware, at and heck, you know, we convened at Canada West, we convened a breakfast at the Western Governors Association meeting when it was in Montana two years ago for Western premiers, and British Columbia didn't show up. So we need you know, to show British up. Sorry, Columbia Carla, we're up against, showing up and helping. We're we're up against the clock here. It's fascinating, and I'm so glad that there is a call to action here and have our provincial government show up and and be involved and engaged on on some solutions here where a federal uh, piece just isn't in place. I thank you so much for your time today. Hey, good speaking with you, Jody. That's Carlo Day, the director of the Trade and Investment Center, Canada West Foundations. Time to go in on a very divisive topic. And, and you know what? The phone lines will open them up. 604-280-9898 or star 9898. Hands-free, please, on your cell phone. It's a free call, star 9898. It's about drinking in Vancouver parks. Some are staunchly against this. Others are absolutely already doing it, illegal or not and still more, had their vote swayed in the most recent municipal election, at least in the city of Vancouver, with sort of the inference that there would be change in our ever-growing city. To talk this through, it's time to bring in our good friend of the program, host of This Is Van Keller podcast, and has penned a piece in the Daily Hive that I urge you to read. Mo Amir is with us. Hey, Mo. Hey, Jody. Happy Friday. Thank you. And to you too. What a perfect topic for a happy Friday. Wish it was happier in terms of everybody being able to, because I'm on the side of responsible citizens consuming uh, responsibly. Can I use the word responsible again? Uh, alcohol, wherever. I mean, a very European Absolutely. background. When you travel around the world, we're, we're an anomaly that this is so um, bylawed into a corner here. I want your thoughts on where we're at. Well, it's an interesting issue in Vancouver, and it's one that keeps coming up. And I want to point to a tweet from two years ago. Kennedy Stewart, who is running for the mayor of Vancouver, obviously he won, but at the time, two years ago, he was running. He posted a photo of himself at Dude Chilling Park with some other adults, and the other adults had some open beers in hand. And uh, now Mayor Stewart, at that time, he tweeted that, you know, he had a great conversation about being allowed to drink alcohol in parks, just like other world cities permit, as you mentioned uh, at the top of the segment. The subtext, of course, was that Kennedy would legalize responsible alcohol consumption in the city's parks and beaches. And of course, we know that aside from a pilot project that has allowed drinking in four public plazas in Vancouver, you still can't drink in any parks and beaches in the city. And for a long time... The, uh, the assumption was, at least in the public's mind, was that this was illegal because of, of a perceived public health and safety risk. Of course, as we all remember, unfortunately, the 2011 Stanley Cup riot certainly didn't help make this case, nor does 
the debauchery that is commonplace on the Granville Strip on the weekends, especially pre-COVID. And the truth is, even a few months ago, Dr. Patricia Daly, the chief medical health officer for Vancouver Coastal Health, who by all accounts is incredible at her job, she was warning Vancouver City Council that this is not a good idea based on the quote-unquote binge drinking culture that is observable in BC. Now, a lot of your listeners are, are probably pretty smart and they know that this issue is actually the jurisdiction of the Vancouver Parks Board, not City Council. So going back to that 20 election, uh, 2018 municipal election, uh, someone who did explicitly campaign on legalizing alcohol consumption in parks was Dave Demers, who is running for Park Board and is now a Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. Mm-hmm. And Dave, I think, takes a lot of heat on this file, but in reality, his first motion on Park Board was on this very issue. And what he uncovered was that, and this should have been known to Mayor Stewart and even known to councillors Melissa DiGenova and Sarah Kirby-Young because they sat as Park Board Commissioners, uh, but what he found out is that the city of Vancouver has a very unique barrier in terms of legalizing drinking in parks and beaches. And that barrier is a little complicated, but I'll try to simplify it. It is the BC Liquor Control and Licensing Act, which under then-BC Liberal, BC Attorney General Susan Anton, was amended in 2014. And now, if you recall, at that time, the big news on that amendment was uh, BC would now allow for happy hours and that sort of thing. But that amendment also allowed municipalities and regional districts to designate public zones for alcohol consumption. Now, the problem is the park board is neither a municipality nor is it a regional district. So the park board is kind of stuck in this legal purgatory when it comes to the issue of public drinking in parks. And the kicker, of course, is that Susan Anton herself was a Vancouver Parks Board Commissioner in the past, Mm -hmm. so it is a weird oversight. And so when people talk about how, you know, North Vancouver or Port Coquitlam, my brother Brad West out there, how they quickly, so quickly legalized drinking in parks, it is simply because they could do it. Meanwhile, it is, it is legally impossible for the park board to greenlight it in Vancouver. And so I, I understand that some listeners are going to say, okay, well, why the delay? If Dave Demers came into the office, you know, almost two years ago, why are we still dealing with this? And so I asked Dave that, and he said that, you know, even COVID, um, as he was pressing this issue, there was, uh, even pre-COVID, I should say, as he was pr- pressing this issue, Um, There was communication between the city's legal staff, which covers council and park board, and the B.C. Attorney General's office. And that communication was just very slow and very bureaucratic. And because he's not privy to those communications, it's just unclear why it was that way. The bureaucracy here, though, Mo, is thick. I mean, I got to jump in on that. It's like we have exposed the the level of red tape and bureaucracy in the city of Vancouver with the park board, with the province right here, as we are in a pandemic with people mm-hmm. who live in little boxes that can't have physical distancing within their apartment in within their square footage. And now are not allowed to uh, socially distance with their friends outside of their bubble and, and have a beer or a glass of wine because the binge drinkers and the reckless, noisy public drinkers are not waiting for a bylaw to be removed. 
Well, right? well, that's just it. And when we talk about a binge drinking culture and we talk about, you know, reckless behavior that might uh, come out from drinking in, in parks, those people are already doing it, right? right. You, you, yeah. you, you can go down to the beach in the summer and, and you can see it already. So how much of a difference this will make, it, it's, it's unclear. And certainly, I think, with this pandemic, a lot of that bureaucracy, as you said, has been exposed. Yeah. But finally... After a lot of legal clarification, Park Board was able to pass a motion to allow drinking in 22 designated parks and beaches. So it is up to the province now to amend the BC Liquor Control Act to include Vancouver Park Board alongside municipalities and regional districts so that hopefully, finally, the city of Vancouver has a completely uh, empowered mechanism to designate public drinking spaces. The only problem is that in terms of when that will happen, uh, right. The bad news is it's probably not going to happen in, in time for this summer, but mm-hmm. you never know. When so many people need it so very badly just to be able to pick up their dinner at the takeout, supporting their local restaurant where they get the six pack of beer for the, mm. the group of four or six people that are going to gather responsibly. And, and instead of sitting at the parking lot, they're going to sit at the picnic table. Like, come on. <laughs> I want to say something to those who organize private parties, to those who are attending them and those who are thinking of other ways to hold large gatherings in the, in the middle of a global pandemic. Enough. That's enough now. Refusing to accept that COVID-19 changes everything, must change everything, puts all of us at risk and all that we aspire to do and to be this summer. The goal of public health officials isn't to ruin anybody's summer or limit their chance to party. That's the work of COVID-19. That is BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Uh, very poignant in laser focus on those who think that it is okay to sort of goes go back and party like it, you know, it's 2019. It's not. Large gatherings, parties is the, that we saw in Canada Day up in Kelowna that has resulted in 1,000 people in isolation, 33 people test case positive at those parties, and as a result of those parties, 1,000 people in isolation for 14 days. And now these parties in Vancouver that uh, were crossover bubbles, people wanting to have private parties in their homes and thinking that I'll just have this number of people over tonight and a different number of people over tomorrow night and another group over... Guess what? 400 people now in isolation, thanks to a couple of parties, uh, private parties here in Metro Vancouver. To talk through just why this partying without the realities and health measures of COVID-19 being front of mind is dangerous. We bring in the host of the award-winning Super Awesome Science Show podcast and the author of The Germ Code and The Germ Files, good friend of the program, Jason Tetro is with us. Hi, Jason. Hello there. I get so frustrated about this. It it feels like we could just have avoided so much of this if people just, well, stopped being so textbook on the timeline of a pandemic, as you always tell me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's, it's one of those things where whenever something like this hits, and it could be flu, it could be um, coronavirus, it could be respiratory syncytial virus, it could be a number of different potential um, pandemic causers. What ends up happening is that the first people we hear about who end up with the serious infections usually tend to be the elderly. Yeah. And what that does 
is over the first few months, while the elderly, unfortunately, are at the highest risk, and they're the ones who end up being on the statistical charts with all the big bars up in the air, well, you know, all the other age groups are really low, and what ends up happening is that um, people start to think that, well, maybe I, since I happen to be in one of those smaller age groups, eh, it's not really going to affect me. The problem is that that's just the first part like the first 10%, not even the end of the first act, for goodness sakes, of the story. And then what ends up happening is that as we start progressing through, we start to create this W curve. So we have that rise in the elderly, but then we start having this rise in people between 20 and 44 years of age. And what ends up happening at that point is that as those numbers increase, then the likelihood of having severe infections also increases. And before you know it, you start seeing those people going to the hospital. Even though they weren't in the first part, they are now. And what we've seen in some places down in the States where, unfortunately, the pandemic timeline took the fork where it's going to go up as opposed to down like it has in B.C., you start seeing the majority of people in hospital happen to come from that 20 to 44 age group. And Jason, when we're talking about here in British Columbia, and as you heard, um, BC Health Minister Adrian Dix there uh, saying, please don't do that. Don't mm-hmm. ruin everything for everybody. And, and Dr. Henry's approach is a little, a little more kind and, and calm and, and, and safe mantra, as, as we know, um, sort of that management, trying to find ways for all of us to, to get the message to those who maybe aren't watching the daily briefings, who maybe aren't tuned into the radio right now, who don't watch the six o'clock news, how do we get to that age group, that 20 to 39 or, or 45 year old age group that kind of has that invincibility piece that doesn't really understand that they can be that asymptomatic carrier that could mm-hmm. lead to exponential community spread? I think what we need to do is we need to spread the word that essentially the scientific results are telling us. And that is, if you happen to be in the younger age group, and we're talking about uh, you know, the late teens to the early 30s, um, about 30% of people have some kind of coexisting or, or pre-existing condition. And that could potentially lead to not just a hospitalization, but a very long problem. Now, if you're talking about that whole area from, you know, the teenagers up until the 40s, you have to also realize that this infection is one that will not necessarily just go away. We are finding that this could have long-term impacts down the road, even in people who have been asymptomatic. We're starting to see in these asymptomatic individuals lung damage that is potentially going to cause them severe problems later on in life. Now, I get it that You know, even when you're young and you're feeling invincible, you're not really thinking about how it could potentially harm me down the road. What you also have to realize is that there are other types of infections that have come out that we've heard about, such as mumps, that really Mm -hmm. shock people. I mean, the minute that we hear that mumps is in our bar scene, the bars just essentially don't see very many people. Because at the end of the day, we already know that if that comes out, that there are a lot of secondary problems that could occur if you happen to get those mumps viruses inside of you. We need to be able to make sure that that's getting out there so that it's not just the, um, the, the cough and the fever and, and the potential for fatigue, but that it's those longer-term symptoms and, and problems that could potentially happen that people become aware of. 
the long-term damage that, that puts us at risk. And to those who think that we are in the bottom of the ninth inning of this COVID-19 pandemic, when really we're in the top of the third, to use a baseball analogy, mm-hmm. we really need to continue to hammer home the facts about this. Because there are a lot of people who feel like, you know what, when is this going to end? I'm over it. I'm done with this. Yeah, uh, that that's normal. It, uh, I mean, yeah. usually that happens around the middle of July, which is where we started seeing the fatigue. We're now going into August, and now the back to school is going to take over all the conversations. Um, where we really start to see a problem is around October, and then people have to understand that it's usually an 18-month process. So it probably won't be until August of next year before we start to start to see the declines that we expect, even if we have a vaccine. So even with you have to realize that as much as we've done a really, really great job, and BC has probably led the world in terms of, uh, you know, pre- preventing this thing from getting out of control, um, it can happen still at any time. And so it really is up to everybody out there to, you know, make sure that we're maintaining that 60 to 65% of normal, because we know yeah. that that is basically going to be okay. And that if there are cases that are happening, that we understand that we've got to be monitoring, we've got to be isolating. And if you are traveling outside of your area, if you're going outside of your cohort for whatever reasons, when you come back, you can't go back to your cohort the way you thought you could. So if you happen to be with a whole bunch of friends and you're all a cohort and then one of them goes off to, you know, party with a bunch of other people, that person's going to have to isolate for 14 days from everybody else. They're outside of your bubble for the next 14, no exceptions. Uh, under the age of 40, but that 20 to 29-year-old age group, is the, the, the number of cases are increasing in that age group. And that's where uh, all the messaging and the sort of sh- flexibly changing policies at the local level is being done right now to try and keep that uh, number uh, reduced. And so it is um, something that, again, I always ask all Canadians, including young Canadians, that this is really important that you uh, follow public health measures. Dr. Teresa Tam, following public health, health measures. So let's do a PSA, Jason Tetro, the host <laughs> of the award-winning Super Awesome Science Show podcast and author of The Germ Code and Germ Files. You know this. It, it, you're so smart that you could do this backwards and forwards. We're smart enough as citizens to understand the simplicity of these. It's not heavy lifting to follow health orders, is it? No, no, not at all. I mean, it it really is not that difficult to be able to maintain that six foot distance from one another. It's not that difficult to put on a mask. It's not that difficult to use hand sanitizer if you happen to touch something that you're not sure of the safety of. And here's one thing that I think people really need to hear. Um, I, I don't know. Have you ever watched NASCAR? Yes. Yeah. Well, a couple of weeks ago, NASCAR had its all-star race in Bristol in Tennessee. And the reason that this is important is because they invited 30,000 people to come. Okay? 30,000 yeah. people in one spot to be able to watch a race. Now, of course, all of us, including myself, are going, hmm. But they made everybody follow public health. They made everybody stay away from each other. People had to have their own cohorts. And they did such a good job, 30,000 people all in the same environment, not a single cluster. Wow. That is how you do it. That is why following the, 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 the guidelines, the recommendations, all of these things, masks, physical distancing, keeping the, the hand sanitizer around, you can do it. 
And that's the reason why we think that this is the best way to be able to make sure that this virus does not destroy our society, because we know how to prevent it. It's called a preventable disease. So yeah, therefore, it's really quite if simple. Thirty thousand yeah. people in Tennessee, Tennessee people <laughs> yeah. can do it. People in British Columbia can too. And we did it early on here, and then for some reason our success is sort of causing people to loosen up in ways that they're like, you know what, I can have my friends over for a party, and you know what, we can all sit together inside. We'll just sit at the dining room table. It's no problem. You know what, you can't. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell if you would like to ask a question or share thoughts with Jason Tetro. Uh, Let's go to the phone board. Steve, you're up first. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Jody. Pleasure. Um, I heard I, I heard last night the uh, head of the ICU ICU unit I guess in uh, Houston, and he explained it as two pandemics. First pandemic is a COVID nineteen pandemic, and the second one is a pandemic of stupidity, because this keeps repeating itself over and over and over again. We've seen it happen through Europe. We've seen it happen through Florida, through New York. Look how they got it. Finally got it together. I'm going to go one step further and say the pandemic of alcohol-induced stupidity because you can't socially distance. It's just your, your ambitions, your, all your inhibitions go down. That's why they closed the bars first. Yeah. Was because yeah. I remember that. Because it was St. Patty's Day, Steve. You're right. You're right. Let's get Jason Tetro in on this one because is there a way in your, Jason, in your experience with, with a number of pandemics, uh-huh. is enforcement of this possible? Is it possible to say, you know what, two strikes, you're fined or whatever? Is there a way to do that or do, do people really have to just agree to pull in the same direction? Yeah, you have to make sure that the, the, the society, that the populace is in on it and, and they want to be part of the solution as opposed to part of the problem. Uh, we've seen those people doing their protests against masks and everything. Here in Canada, the numbers are just you know, kind of zero, uh, whereas in some places down in the United States, they actually have heads of government who are essentially those protesters. Uh, when that happens, it becomes very, very problematic. Um, and, and for the record, um, it's not just been this pandemic where we've seen this kind of uh, uh, problem with people essentially just flouting everything and, and going about their own ways. Uh, it's been happening since long before, uh, you know, BCE times and uh, even back in 1349 with the plague, uh, people were just simply, you know, not doing what they were actually being asked to do. And it just it just sets it off like a wildfire and it just goes from there. So, Jason, I want to get your advice because you do know the timeline of a pandemic, like what you just said. When when we're out and about and we're we're keeping our two meter distance, we're we're wearing our mask if we can't. We've sanitized our hands. Obviously, we haven't left our house if we're sick. These are the these are the most important of the health orders. But we do find ourselves in a situation where we're going to a friend's place, we're sitting social distancing in their yard, and all of a sudden, people unexpectedly arrive. How do we handle that best? Do we just say, you know what, too much for me, I got to go? Or do you call the cop? Like, what do you do? You know how um, there used to be a way where you would leave uh, something at the front door for people to take with them um, sort of when they're coming in. So you have like a name tag or something along those lines so that people would know who you are. Well, we now live in a situation where masks are everywhere. (laughs) Just have a mask available. If all of a sudden people show up out of nowhere, boom, put the mask on. 
That's the first right. thing. And also make sure that they use some hand sanitizer. I mean, we're doing You've it at grocery You've been a proponent stores. of the masks since day one, right? You've been like, yes, masks. Oh, before day one, except I was using scarves because when we used to wear masks, we used to got, you know, a visit to the secondary when we were in line in the airport. Right, the airport. Now it's kind of yes. like you don't get it. If you're not wearing a mask, yeah. you get a visit to the secondary. Um, but yeah. I, I used to promote scarves, neck tubes, all of these things. Basically, it's called barrier protection. And everybody should know what barrier protection means. It's just that we're using it for our mouths instead of other places. And so gotcha. what you're going to do is you're going to use that to make sure that you don't have any infiltration, or if there is going to be any kind of infiltration, it's so minimal that it's not going to lead to infection. Jason Tetro, every time I talk to you, I learn something, and you do help educate our listener, and we're going to pass the lessons on to the young people in our lives and those who perhaps aren't engaged as much in news. We appreciate your time very, very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Have a great weekend. And you too. That is our good friend, Jason Tetro. Hey there, Jody Vance in for Jill. You know you can find me on Twitter, right? At Jody Vance. I don't really know much beyond that when it comes to social media. I like to consume some news with fact-checking over my Twitter feed, following reputable outlets and whatnot. But there's some pretty solid conspiracy theorists and certainly a great deal of, shall we call it, fake news available online. Uh, There's fun stuff too. Who doesn't like a TikTok? I'm not on TikTok, but I see some TikTok. I particularly like that woman who does the uh, lip syncs of Donald Trump's speeches. She's very funny. Sarah Cooper, I think is her name. Uh, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. With every passing day, there's kind of a realization as to how social media has hit global politics. And for years now, uh, it has had some influence on politics. More and more are we understanding just how severe some of that impact has been. It's it's in the crosshairs, let's say, at this point. You know, at first, big players uh, kind of refused to, you know, the, the Zuckerbergs of the world, they refused to fact check and police you know, in the name of freedom of speech and expression. But now there is actual action being taken by those same uh, executives as people started to exit stage left on Facebook in particular. So let's talk all of this through with somebody who definitely knows of what I am speaking. He is an expert on social media, an educator in social media, and a great friend of the show. Jesse Miller of Mediated Reality is with us. Jesse, it's so good to catch up with you again. Jody, how are you today? I'm good. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. And uh, it, it is... <sighs> Initially, we wanted you to come on to talk on uh, a number of talk- topics like TikTok and who's going to buy TikTok and was Trump saying about Microsoft, if you buy it, you got to pay us and da, da da And then this morning, I woke up to a tweet by you that was speaking to how Facebook has actually removed a QAnon group um, from the platform, which I thought that feels different. Is that is that as big of a story as it felt when I saw it move on my Twitter feed? It's pretty big. I mean, this is a group of almost 200,000 people worldwide. Uh, It is one of the most influential conspiracy groups. And you have to remember here with QAnon, it's not just a singular conspiracy. This is a big tent group. So if you are prone to feeling like there are conspiracy theories, deep state secrets, uh, you have a a seat at the QAnon table. Uh, So within that, uh, Facebook not only removing the group, but removing the troll farms that are behind the groups 
groups like this, uh, this is huge. Um, they went after not only uh, this group, but they started shutting down troll farms that were posing as African-American Trump supporters. Um, these are groups that use uh, everyday uh, social media users' photographs to create uh, fake accounts to polarize ideas online. Uh, this is a pretty big takedown. You know what? And interesting, it makes me think of the happening last week and, and is still ongoing, the news around the Ellen DeGeneres show and the work environment there. When I started looking at people that were tweeting at th that story and I would if you hit on the profiles, zero followers, zero followers, two followers, zero. Is that how we identify a troll farm um, yeah. member, I guess? Yeah. yeah. On Twitter account, we'll see these accounts where it's a very generic photo of an individual usually wearing sunglasses. And then you'll see a, a username with a first name and then a lot of numbers, which is usually something that's generated by Twitter to give you a user profile unless you're looking for something specific. Uh, but with the Ellen story, I mean, first and foremost, if you have staff who are legitimately making complaint about a workplace, those are the people right. we should be listening to. Uh, not everybody's opinion on the internet or on the radio. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, even even Ellen's wife, who came forward and said, you know, don't believe the bots. There's legitimacy to that in the sense that the bots are stirring the pod. But for the idea that the accusations are fueled by bots, that's entirely off base. Uh, and I think that's right. unfair of her to, to put it that way. But the bots do exist and they do target um, uh, Hollywood. I think that is a really key piece of this. It, it's not one way or the other on social media in any, no matter what your leaning is with regard to politics or beliefs or what have you. But you go back to the QAnon, and as you were saying, the big tent sort of piece is, is I equate the QAnon conspiracy theorists uh, uh, sort of like with anti-vaxxers. If you challenge them on one subject matter or part of their tent and push back with fact, they'll pivot to, well, what yeah. about this? Well, what about yeah, our I emails or what, whatever? Yeah, exactly. Like, I'll give an example. Right now, I'm looking at a Facebook profile of a person in British Columbia who basically is sharing things like loser Hollywood stars are funding the defund the police movement of Black Lives Matter. And everybody that they're referencing would probably lean a little bit more left. We're not seeing John Voight's photograph in that picture group. And so right. this individual is going after the Ellen story. They're going after uh, the Black Lives Matter conspiracy beliefs. They're going after... Uh, uh, the idea that uh, Trump and Trudeau on either sides of the coin, there's something about them. And so within that, like I said earlier, with QAnon having this big tent, is that if you are a person who's leaning towards conspiracy, this is a big kind of hit towards your everyday social media use. And now we're seeing the QAnon saying, hey, look, we're getting to them. If Facebook's taking us down, we have other places. And that's another concern, because the more we push this down, the more underground it goes. And it is harder to identify those legitimate threats like we saw with the individual who drove in to Rideau Hall. Right. It, this is so complex, Jesse. So what, what do you think was the catalyst for Zuckerberg and the, the powers that be at Facebook to, to make this move? Well, they haven't really come forward with the reasoning except for the fact that they, they knew for sure that there were uh, troll farms that were uh, using Facebook's platform to basically sow dissent. And they identified one individual. The person either says they live in Romania or Montana, which is a, a big juxtaposition of physical location. Uh, but they're basically saying if we know that a person has multiple accounts on the, profile, uh, on the platform and that the person is using these accounts and stolen photos, that's where we get to that terms of service violation 
information. And if you know that an administrator of an account has created that kind of content, then you probably have these grounds to bring the accounts down and the groups down, which is why with this group, uh, because the administration team and the creators are associated to something else, that might be their justification. But Facebook right now is making a lot of money off of, let's say, far right-leaning Republican bases. And those bases don't necessarily see an issue with basically placating the conspiracy if they get a vote at the ballot box. And I want to bring it back to Canada for a second, because in Canada, we sometimes dismiss these big issues from the United States. We are seeing a rise of these kind of radicalized conspiracy beliefs in Canada. And if we had a person drive through the front gates of where the prime minister and the family live with firearms, and that isn't really kind of waking us up, we should be aware that there are people in our family lives who might be radicalized by these ideas. And if you are seeing family members on social media sharing information that seems like, uh, oh, there's a reason that there's something happening with COVID or Bill Gates is behind it, all these things that make people uh, so polarized, you do have to look for the red flags. And that's the hard part with social media. Sometimes we dismiss it, but it does fall to investigators with federal and municipal police to really suss out whether or not a person's threat online is legitimate. And we don't have the resources for that in Canada. So do we go non-emergency police when we see something like that? What action do we take? I would suggest when you see it happening with people you know, you're having conversations with people who you think might be able to line and, and then bring that concern if there's legitimate concern to safety. So if you have a family member who has firearms and they're posting things about how they're not too happy with the current government and let's raise up our firearms because they might be taking away, you should put mm. into your own, own, own account saying, hey, what's my responsibility here? But when it comes to family dialogues and people writing things online, I mean, we don't have the time or energy to flag everything. Um, so yeah. at the end of the day, if you're a person who's concerned about one individual, yeah, reach out to local police if you think it's a viable uh, option. But at the end of the day, for most people, it, it's easier to ignore it and maybe say, you know, this is just that person. That's how they are. But then reach out to other family members and they say, hey, have you seen how they're writing online? I've been concerned. And interestingly enough, in Canada, we have actually seen an increase of people subscribing to conspiracy theory during the COVID pandemic. Uh, one group had 400 members prior to lockdown. And over the past six months, it's grown upwards of just under 5,000. So you're starting to see individuals who are spending more time online and potentially becoming more radicalized because they are looking for direction. And looking for something to hold on to. We're going to pause here. Jesse Miller, Mediated Reality, social media expert and educator, mediatedreality.com. Tough conversations to be had around homelessness and poverty in the city of Vancouver, particularly. The homeless count is in. Uh, listening to the Mike Smith show earlier, Jeremy Hunka of the Union Gospel Mission was speaking about the 3,634 homeless people counted before the pandemic. Those numbers before the pandemic. And since he has seen and heard and, and uh, counted four times the number of turnaways from shelters, and that extends now to the suburbs and mobile outreach is way busier. In a pandemic, housing crisis in and around Metro Vancouver is very real. And uh, look no further than Strathcona Park, the encampment, 400 tents. There's urgency. But what can be done? so much talk about it around it but what steps must be taken and by whom to move this file forward and help people living in poverty and unaffordability there are 
studies that have been done that say that government needs to recognize how it's taxation that is actually causing unaffordability, a big piece of it, therefore contributing to the system that does perpetuate the homelessness, the poverty. The trickle down to the citizen is real. Now, Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West has been outspoken on what we must do to evolve outdated systems in a broad sense in policy, obviously in Port Coquitlam, different than the city of Vancouver, yet some ideas Brad, that you've brought to the table that are very much food for thought. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jody. What costs associated with building, quickly building housing for people who need it urgently could be waived or stayed in the name of getting some relief for those who need it so terribly badly? Well, I would say the vast majority, if not all of it, uh, I mean, the reality is when you're dealing with housing that is going to, in fact, save taxpayers a significant amount of money by getting uh, homeless people uh, or people who are economically vulnerable housed, um, you know, I think it's just a matter of uh, getting it done. Uh, And so from our perspective, you know, when we have projects like that, uh, they are absolutely fast-tracked through the city. Uh, city waives all of its uh, usual fees that would be associated with that type of housing because we just want to get the bloody thing up. Can you give us an idea for those of us who may not know the depth of the fees? Give us some example of, of the fees that get waived in the name of doing the right thing here. Right, so it will depend on uh, the type of project, how big uh, the property is. It will depend on uh, whether this is uh, involving an amendment to an official community plan or rezoning. Um, But, you know, these can go from the tens of thousands of dollars to to even more, uh, depending on the size of the project. Which ultimately gets handed down to, you know, the cost of the developer. And then the developer Mm -hmm. passes that along to whoever either purchases or rents there? Yeah, I mean, from our perspective, you know, I think it's important that the the municipality not be a a cost barrier to having, you know, these projects get done. It's our community that's going to benefit, as I said, when you, you know, are able to provide some housing security to people, uh, that just saves you a whole host of other issues. And so, you know, while it may require the municipality to to take a bit of a haircut, in the end, I think there's a, a larger benefit that occurs because you aren't dealing with all of the associated challenges and problems and costs that then come with uh, homelessness or, or people who are struggling with poverty. It's not your jurisdiction. We are talking about Metro Vancouver as the mayor of Port Coquitlam. It's, it's a very different beast, I guess we'll call it, but having your perspective on it uh, helps because we need fresh ideas, Brad, and we need ways of moving this forward. And when you talk about the cost of homelessness from the people that I've spoken to, the the likes of Mark Brand from A Better Life Foundation, who is working downtown on the, on the downtown east side and, and really trying to save lives, boots on the ground, feed people who are starving, uh, living mm-hmm. in poverty and living rough, like people living on the street. You want, you know, we could go into all the details of that, but it's a. He says it's about a million dollars a day. Yeah, like it's, I, it's I a mean, lot of money that is being poured it, into there with no result. 
that doesn't surprise me. I mean, that it, it's a it's a big figure, but I, I think it's probably right. I mean, there, there's so many associated costs uh, with homelessness. I mean, that's why I think we need to also look at how do we tackle this at the front end? You know, how do you how do you catch someone and stop them from becoming homeless? And then, you know, often, of course, the the vicious uh, cycle that begins with uh, addiction as well and, and other things yeah. that, you know, are associated with it. And so, you know, <laughs> to me, this may be simple thinking, but, you know, economic security for people starts with good, decent jobs. Uh, and, you know, if you look at any study in the last couple of years for our region, uh, we have a wage stagnation, uh, income stagnation, I think a big part of it is because, you know, we're losing too many of the good uh, manufacturing um, type jobs in our region. You know, I I know we don't think of uh, Metro Vancouver as maybe being a um, a resource based uh, region or, you know, a manufacturing region, but we have lost too many of those types of jobs and in their place have come largely service sector jobs, uh, which, mm. you know, are usually, unfortunately, minimum wage jobs or, or just above the minimum wage. And then you've got people trying to work, maybe two of them to make ends meet. And at the end of the day, you know, you can't have a region where everyone works in a coffee shop. And, you know, we need to be able to have jobs that pay family supporting wages uh, that do real things, and, and that helps. That economic security helps uh, people from experiencing homelessness. And so, I think a, a focus on the on the front end, on the prevention side, and you can extend that. You know, yes, economic security, job security, like I'm talking about, uh, but uh, as well, obviously, with uh, with substance abuse and and things like that. So, you know, it's there's there's a lot to be done and you nailed it when you've said that it's been studied it's been discussed i mean there's you know regions all over the world that have dealt with the same thing uh, and i think more than anything it requires uh, the resolve to to get this done uh, yeah, you know first I, steps, I don't right? think that, exactly so we've got Mayor of Port Coquitlam, Brad West, with us, and we're talking about how we push the first dominoes in solving, or even not even solving, Brad, just trying to find a way to begin to chip away at what is an absolute crisis in Metro Vancouver, specifically in in Vancouver proper. Um, and I'm getting emails from people without even putting out the call for it. We're going to ask pe- people to call in as well. 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell if you've got a question here. Um, but Brad, prior to the break, we were we were trying to come up with some maybes, some solutions here, like removing some of the fees attached with building or, or how how we fast track this housing. I was absolutely blown away learning from former Vancouver city councilor, George Affleck, you know, George and I do the podcast unspun and we often touch on this and he will tell me that the urgent need for, for uh, affordable units rentals doesn't get fast tracked uh, in the permitting. Mm. That shocks me. Like that seems like number one, right? For sure. Look, you can't go around using the rhetoric about, being in a crisis and then not acting like we're in a crisis. Yeah. So if 
if if politicians want to say we've got an affordability crisis and a housing crisis, then you got to you know get your stuff together and act like it, uh, and that yeah. means getting these projects uh, through you know system. I mean that should be the bare minimum. Uh, there's you know I understand you know I've been on city council for twelve years. I understand there's a process that needs to play out and and you know staff have to do their due diligence. I'm not arguing that, but no. Come on, that needs to take two years. Forget it, right? Like that—that's that, the sort of nonsense that should just be nipped right away. Uh, you can just nip just, that in the bud. You should. I, I got an email here from Jenny. I'd like to read. Uh, Jenny sent in. Mayor Kennedy is always talking about building more rentals. Recently, Holborn Properties wants to build on the Little Mountain site six-story market rental. Not the answer, Jenny says. This means there'll be about $2,500 a month for a one-bedroom. I read Urban YBR about new buildings and the cost of rents are outrageous. No wonder we have homelessness. And when he says affordable rents, definitely not true either. Perhaps we need to put some sort of moratorium on building these these market rentals until we have some uh, like urgent affordable homes for people who are living in tents in parks. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously there's a, a question of priorities. Um, and, you know, again, I'll, I'll use the, the caveat we always use. Port Coquitlam is different yes. than Vancouver. But I'll tell you, there's not many people in Port Coquitlam who could, you know, afford to pay, you know, $2,500, $3,000 or more a month in rent. Um, yeah. and, and so, you know, I, I think you got to look at who are you building for, um, you know, and, and what can those folks afford, right? And if it's completely detached from local economic conditions, um, you know, you're probably not moving the needle the way you need to. And you know what, Brad, it's interesting because people will say, well, why are you interviewing Brad West about this? Because when we are speaking with, let's say, Mayor Kennedy Stewart, who makes himself available, he's an excellent talker, hard to get a a straight up answer. It always feels like... um, the cautious politician working to get reelected when next that voters come to the ballot box, where you seem to kind of fearlessly go, well, what do we need to do here, guys? Let's make it happen. <laughs> and it's it's refreshing, I want to say, because people will, you know, we always have to put that caveat. We have similar with conversations in Delta or when we talk yep. about uh, the conversations about responsible alcohol consumption in, in parks and beaches. I mean, Port, Port Coquitlam managed to do that. And, and it has been to this point, what, a success? Would you call it a success? Oh, absolutely. We we got it done in about two weeks. Uh, it's been in place since before Canada Day. Um, it's been wonderful. I'll tell you a little story about that just quickly. Okay. Um, yeah. Because there's been, you know, you, you've heard about, uh, you know, people who've had their sort of wedding plans uh, cancelled or, or, you know, or altered and, uh, anyways, um, there was actually a wedding in one of our parks uh, just uh, a couple weeks ago. I thought it was a, just an awesome thing that uh, this couple, this Port Coquitlam couple, was able to uh, get married in, in one of our parks and able to, uh, you know, serve. They had It was a small wedding, of course, just a small number of people, their, their family and close friends. And they were able to, you know, have a glass of champagne to do a toast and have a couple of beers and some wine afterwards and, I just thought that was awesome, you know, and, and uh, people saw it and thought, oh, isn't that cool? So it, it's been it's been great. It's worked out really yeah. well. You know, there's been all of the, you know, doomsday scenarios um, haven't come to pass. And I mean, 
to me, look, this is one of the reasons why it seems like nothing can get done uh, is because we want to focus on the most remote 0.0001 chance percent of this happening. But what happens if it does? So, you know what? Forget it. We just won't do anything. Right. Uh, that attitude prevails far too often in in government in general in our area. And, and because of that, it seems like we continue to talk about the same issues for decades. And nothing gets done. I just got another email, this one from Jim. It's very simple. It's just a, just a handful of words. It says, Jody, Brad West for PM. Regards, Jim. <laughs> that's very nice. But I, well, that, that, that's, yeah. that's nice. I, I, I've got the only job I want as mayor of Poco. I love it. Um, you know, I, I appreciate you having me on, Jody. I made myself a promise a long time ago that if I was going to do elected office in politics, uh, I would uh, be uh, uh, my authentic self. I would say what I think. And people have the opportunity to decide if they like that or not. And, and we have a vote and, and there we go. So, there you know, you trying to couch everything, um, you know, to not offend anyone means that, you know, you, you kind of stand in for nothing and you're, you're not getting things done. And, and uh, life is too short, in my opinion, to take that approach. And people need help and help takes action and and you need to be courageous in the actions moving forward for your community. And Brad, you always do. I appreciate you uh, forever picking up the phone every time we call and say, will you come on? You're like, sure. What are we going to talk about? So that is much appreciated, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great weekend. And you too. That is Mayor of Port Coquitlam, Brad West. We want to get some fun here to cap off the Jill Bennett show uh, on this Friday. The Peony is at it again. They're bringing some semblance of normalcy to our first summer in what, 110 years without the exhibition. It is, what, can it be summer without hunky bills? Uh, no, not for me. No, I, I need my fried onions. I need my mini donuts. I need the wooden roller coaster. Well, thank goodness. My needs will be met. <laughs> our collective happy needs will be met safely and to share all of the information on what is happening with the p in 2020 during a pandemic as the president and CEO of the p Shelley Frost, is on the line with this great news. Hi, Shelley. Good afternoon, Jody. How are you? I'm great. You know what? I can't, I'm going to be honest. I've read your press release about nine times and I keep thinking, <laughs> thank goodness this is happening. Please share. Uh, you've, always been, you've always been such a great supporter and we know you come out every year with your family. And you know thank what? You. It's, it's not the fair we all wanted, but it's something. And it's, you know, it's, it's one more step forward and one more thing for families and stuff to be able to do. And one more step in us kind of helping to, to uh, push forward with doing whatever we can to get back open. We are excited to be able to give you a, at least a bit of a fair experience. A little bit of all your favorite. A little bit. I got goosebumps. Honestly, when I'm seeing like super dogs and there will be a parade, <laughs> albeit a reverse parade. But like uh, Patrick Robert does such an amazing job. But, you know, like the, the big dinosaurs, we're going to have the food and even the agriculture. We can even see the animals. You can it was so funny that you say that. I was on a call with the, the egg team yesterday and I said, can you please tell me there's going to be baby animals for people yes, to hold, please. like for people to see? And they said, yes, there yeah. will be baby animals. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. This is so, so, you know, great. the super dogs, all the, the groups that we work with too, they're just looking for opportunities to be able to connect with the people that love them too. So we were thrilled yeah. to be able to do a partnership with the, the super dogs to be able to come out. It's not their traditional show. It's going to be, a, you know, a shorter version and you'll be able to kind of drive in and get a 10 to 15 minute version of it but you're going to be able to see all those fabulous dogs doing fabulous things 
Uh, and then okay, we're Shelley, take- you need to make a you need to make a promise for me. I need a couple of people standing around saying, "Win a house, win a car." <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm going to make you that promise. <laughs> okay, good, 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 good. The peony prize home. I always enter. I, I remember watching live when Barry Delay won it a number of years back. Oh, I remember uh, that too. Right. So when it happens to people you know, you're like, oh. I need to get my tickets. It's a great <laughs> gift. And, and what, a, really what a great thing to do in a pandemic. Yeah, it really could be me, Shelly. It it's so iconic, though. And it's just great to know that this is happening. Tell us more. Yeah, so we know you're going to get to see a little bit of the super dogs. Um, we're going to take you down what we're going to call Ag Alley, and you're going to be able to see, you know, some of the live animals and the baby animals. Uh, we have some giant inflatables, and so you're going to be able to see, you know, a, a few dinosaurs set up. Uh, we're going to take you through a reverse parade through part of the fairgrounds where there'll be lots of lively, immersive dancing and, and, and music, uh, you know, that you're kind of used to seeing on the, on the grounds. Uh, there's going to yeah. be, really, there's, there's going to be so many different things going on. We, um, the, you'll be able to drive past the prize home. Um, it right. won't be open for tours that week, but it will be open for tour, tours the following week. Uh, and we are also looking at opportunities to maybe bring uh, some of your favorite, you know, marketplace things that you love to shop for the following week. Um, Come we, on uh, now. I love that. I know. I've got one of everything, Jody. <laughs> oh, I, I swear I still got brooms and mops. Still in, the, still in the packaging. <laughs> and the food. Of so course, good, Shelly. The food. You know, I want my yeah. lucky bills. We've been talking with the partners to see, you know, who can set up and, and who's available. And, uh, you know, Hunky Bills has a, has a new food truck. So it's going to be yeah, even, yeah, I know, more convenient for them. And so we're going to bring back some mini donuts. We're going to, you know, we're going to have some of our food, our favorites there. And you'll be able to get, although, you know, not your traditional four, six-hour experience, you will be able to get a little touch of your favorites. And uh, we're just, we're so happy to be a part of it. And we're so yeah. happy, you know, just to be working with the team, working on some of the stuff that makes us and all the people around us smile. Let's take care of some of the details here as people are listening going, okay, how do I get involved? Because you got to you get bet. your ticket online, right? Ticketleader.ca? Yeah, it's all health and safety and, and you know, um, limited capacity. So you can go to yeah. PE.ca or ticketleader.ca. We are doing it by the car load. So, you know, put your bubble in your car. Um, come on out. It's $25 for a car load. You're going to get two tickets to next year's fair as part of that, which more than covers the cost of driving through this time. Um, nice. You're going to be able to, when you get on the ground, you'll get copies of uh, menus and things so you can do your ordering and stuff online. And we're going to get you all set up in queue so that it's very orderly and controlled. And you get to go through and, like I said, just, you know, just put some smiles back on people's faces this summer and be able to enjoy a few of the things that, uh, that people love. And all of the safety measures, certainly Dr. Henry approved, which also also makes people Indeed. very uh, comfortable and confident with yeah. heading out to this new normal fair. It's the new normal yeah. peony, sure the peony.ca, so. right? Yeah. You bet. And, you know, I hope people will feel, feel comfortable. It is all in conjunction with Vancouver Coastal Health and uh, lots of details at peony.ca. All right. We will leave it there and I will see you at the fair, Shelley. We will Thank see you, so much you there, for doing Jody this. Vance.
I love it. Take care. I love it. Bye-bye. It makes me happy. It makes us feel bye-bye. It makes us feel so much better to know that there is going to be that little taste of normalcy, even just the the scent of those mini donuts. Or for me, it's the fried onions. I mean, let's be honest. I love the burger. At $25 per car load, regardless of the number of passengers. So put your bubble in your vehicle. Price includes two tickets to the fair in 2021. Um, and y- you get um, some masks for your vehicle as well. The food, the food purchases, the prize home ticket purchases are extra. So keep that in mind. That's not included in the $25 per car. Oh my goodness. It's got me all excited.